you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll consider together verses 10 and follow. We'll not exhaust these verses. In fact, in our exposition of these verses, we'll skip a few sections that may not be entirely germane to the subject that we're covering this morning, but we will read through at least verses 10 and following through the end of our chapter. We talked last week of the first nine verses in this chapter covering the subject of marriage and marital intimacy. Today we are drawing a close to our series on marriage and family discussing the topic of divorce. Divorce is not a topic, a subject. Text on divorce are not often covered. It's not spoken of much. But I think this is an area where we cannot afford to be silent or neglect to observe the Bible's principles. The statistics tell us that now 50 to 60% of first marriages are ending in divorce. 60 to 67% of second marriages are ending in divorce. This is a difficult topic, but it is far too common to simply ignore. The Bible is not silent on this issue, neither should be the bride of Christ. I like to give the disclaimer at the beginning of messages like this. I, I hate divorce. I have a deep and abiding disdain for divorce. But that is a fundamentally different thing than the suggestion that I in any way have a hatred for or disdain for those who have been victimized by divorce or who have themselves been the offender in the commission or the act of a divorce itself. I think, I believe that we can be both convictional with regards to the teaching of the Bible and kind simultaneously. You see this in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus speaks with great sternness on this subject as well as many others. And yet at the same time is incredibly generous, merciful, gracious, kind toward those he engages with. The answer to the need for great kindness is not to concede the biblical principle. And the answer to emphasizing the biblical principle is to not lose sight of the command of God that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, but to seek to find that place of balance, convictional kindness, baptized in the love and grace and mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I may come short of that standard in our time this morning, but rest assured, that is my aim. There are a few questions in my estimation which loom large over the whole conversation of divorce. For one, what does the Bible teach about this subject? Two, under what circumstances does the Bible permit divorce? Three, is there ever a time when divorce is absolutely necessary? And four, perhaps most importantly, how can the Christian guard himself or herself against divorce. Most of these questions are addressed at least in part in the verses that we'll consider together this morning. So with the table sort of set, would you join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10 and following. This is what the word of God says. I command the married, not I but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband is not to leave his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. 
Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt, but now they're set apart for God. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. For you, wife, how do you know whether you'll save your husband? Or you, husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? However, however, each one must live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I commanded in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision doesn't matter and uncircumcision doesn't matter, but keeping, keeping God's commands does. Each person should remain in the life situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? It shouldn't be a concern to you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of men. Brothers, each person should remain with God in whatever situation he was called. About virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Therefore, I consider this to be good because of the present distress. It is fine for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Don't seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. And I say this, brothers, the time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. <clears throat> I want you to be without concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. So that she may be holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of the world. How she may please her husband. Now I'm saying this for your own benefit. Not to put a restraint on you. But because of what is proper. And so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is acting improperly toward his virgin, if she is past marriageable age, and so it must be, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep his own virgin, will do well. So then he who marries his virgin does well, but he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The gist of Paul's teaching in the verses we've read is that we are to remain in the life situation in which we are called. If you are saved in a marriage, you are to remain in that marriage. If you are saved in a state of singleness 
And God has gifted you with what we've described as the gift of singleness. It is permissible for you that you remain in a state of singleness. Paul seems to prefer singleness over marriage. Me, I'm not so sure. If you were saved in a certain vocation, in a certain career, you ought as much as is possible to remain in that vocation or in that career. If you were saved with certain likes and interests and hobbies, you are to maintain those likes, interests, and hobbies, only now leveraging your interest for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus. Now, naturally, there are limiting factors in each of these cases, and the limiting factors seem to be the point of Paul's focus in specific ways beyond that basic command, live in the life situation in which God called you. Specific to marriage, the, the default position, the baseline is stay. A one-word command, simply stay. God saved you in a difficult marriage situation. You stay. If God saved you and you've now an unbelieving spouse, you stay. Regardless of, of where you find yourself, at the moment of God's call being placed on your life, the charge, the baseline, the default is to stay. Look at verse 10. I command the married. Not I, but the Lord, a wife, is not to leave her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to leave his wife. Basically, Paul is saying, stay. Husbands, don't leave your wives. Wives, don't leave your husbands. But note the language that Paul uses in our passage. In one of the three services last week, I addressed this. And then thought it wise to just wait and hold this idea over for this week's message. Notice the way Paul says, I command the married, not I, but the Lord. Notice down in verse 12 where Paul says, but I, not the Lord. I've heard people handle that in such a way as to suggest that Paul is saying there's not as much authority about these verses. God had something to say, but I'm going to add something that may not be binding or doesn't bear the same kind of authority as other passages. That is not at all what the apostle is saying. Whether he's referencing the direct teaching of Jesus or his own insight, everything that he writes is under the inspiration of the infallible Holy Spirit of God. What Paul says in his authority removed from the teaching of Jesus is no less binding than what he cites as coming directly from Jesus. What he's referencing here is the reality that Jesus has addressed the issues of marriage, of divorce, and of remarriage. But Jesus does not address divorce and remarriage comprehensively. You have experienced that when immorality, adultery, or divorce enter the equation, there are all sorts of variables that factor in to making the appropriate decision. There is no way that all of those variables could be addressed in a 30-minute sermon, nor did Jesus address all of those many variables in any of his expressed teaching contained in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So when Paul says, the Lord, not I, he is appealing directly to book, chapter, and verse of what Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. When he says, I, not the Lord, those verses represent an exposition on the principles for marriage and divorce found in the teaching of Jesus. 
In other words, Paul is taking the teaching ministry of Jesus in a decidedly Jewish context and appropriating that teaching for Gentile people in the city of Corinth. I think the tradition that Paul appeals to is Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 and following. If you'll listen closely, I'll read those verses for you. The Bible says there, when Jesus had finished this instruction, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Listen to the question. Is it okay, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus says, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. What he's acknowledging here is that there are variables involved. Because of the hardness of heart, because of separation, because of divorce, as an inevitable reality in a sinful world, the scripture makes certain concessions for the proper handling of such an arrangement. But that was not the way it was in the beginning. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for the duration of their life. In verse 7, they asked Jesus further, why then did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? And he told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it wasn't like that from the beginning. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, this will tell you something of the low view of marriage in first century Israel. If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Jesus goes on to say, not everyone can accept that saying, but only those it has been given to. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who are made by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Do you see how the teaching of Jesus in so many ways mirrors the teaching of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7? If you can remain, as Jesus describes, a eunuch for the kingdom, pursue that path in life. But as Jesus notes, not everyone can accept this. Not everyone has what we have described here as the gift of singleness. And in the event that you don't, you should pursue as a man, a wife, as a woman, a husband. If you go back to what Paul is teaching here, he appeals first to that default position, the baseline that Jesus established in Matthew 19. One man, one woman, stay. Husbands, do not leave your wives. Wives, do not leave your husbands. Already here, although Paul says, I, not the Lord, Paul has expanded on the teaching, hasn't he? Do you know that never in the teaching of Jesus does he say, wives, don't leave your husbands. It's, it's, an, it's, it's the kind of thing that is beyond imagination in first century Israel. There's an added element of violence when a man leaves his wife because he leaves her impoverished and destitute. If he withdraws his support in a patriarchal society, he has effectively left her destitute. What we're witnessing now in our culture is the inversion of this idea. 
Paul sees a bit of this in a Gentile context, noting beyond the need to say, husbands, don't leave your wives. He says, wives, likewise, don't leave your husbands. We cited the statistic last week that 70% of divorces today are initiated by the wife or the woman in the relationship. This is in some part influenced by the inversion of the very principle that Jesus is cognizant of in Matthew chapter 19. In the same way in a patriarchal society, a man could leave a woman destitute in the process of divorce. Now having inverted that, moving in the direction, in my estimation, of a matriarchal society, we have empowered legally, legislatively, women to, for all intents and purposes, leave a man destitute in the process of divorce. Now I'm not telling you that matriarchy is worse than patriarchy. Both are bad. What I'm saying to you is that the biblical pattern ought to be observed and someone will always lose in the absence of the practice of biblical principle. Husbands stay, wives stay. Paul continues in verse 12, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife and the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt but now they're set apart for God. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. For you, wife, how do you know whether you'll save your husband? Or you, husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Paul is saying where a believer is married to an unbeliever, the desired outcome is that the believer would stay. If an unbelieving spouse is willing to remain in that marriage relationship, you as a believer in Jesus Christ ought to stay. I can't tell you the number of times I've witnessed in ministry a person coming to faith in Jesus, a married person coming to faith in Jesus, and the friction and the tension that their newfound relationship with Christ created in their marriage resulted in a divorce in the months and years immediately after their coming to faith in Christ. It's an unfortunate reality, but it is a reality nonetheless. Jesus warned that the gospel functions at times as a sword, dividing parents and children, children and parents, and we might add even husbands and wives. But the desired outcome, what we are to be in hot pursuit of, is the preservation of that marriage. Remember, what God has put together, man must not put asunder. And so we bear with an unbelieving spouse, resting in the promise of God that we, possessing the presence of God's Holy Spirit, stand to have a sanctifying effect in our home. Just as you have the Spirit of God in your heart, your presence as a believer means that you have the Spirit of God in your house. And no one can live in close proximity to the Spirit of God without at least some of the benefits of God's blessed presence rubbing off on those around. How do you know, oh believing wife, whether or not you might be the sanctifying force in the life of your presently unbelieving husband? And how do you know, believing husband, that you might not be the sanctifying force in your presently unbelieving wife's life? How do you know, believing mama, 
that you won't be the influence that brings, that draws, that God is pleased to use to bring about the salvation of your children? How do you know believing husband wrestling against the goads of an unbelieving wife that you might not be the saving influence in the lives of your children? As much as is possible, stay. But at the same time, recognize that sometimes staying means staying alone. You'll hear sometimes in Bible study circles and even in biblical studies, the terminology exception clause, which has reference to two exceptions the Bible makes where divorce is permissible. One of those is noted by Jesus in the very passage that we read earlier. It's stated again in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. In the event of sexual immorality, adultery, permission is granted that a husband would divorce his wife. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul states here that if an unbelieving spouse is unwilling to stay, then the believing spouse is at liberty to finalize a divorce and to move on with their life. There is full freedom without sin in order that they would remarry. To say that they may move forward remarrying without sin is not to say that there'll be no consequence. And please note that neither in Matthew 6, Matthew 16, or 1 Corinthians 7 does Jesus or the Apostle Paul say that under such circumstances, you must divorce. I refer to this as the nuclear option. Anytime America goes to a war, you realize we could bring this thing to a conclusion in a split second. You punch in the code, you turn the key, you hit the button, you exercise the nuclear option. Every war that we fought in the modern age is brought to an abrupt halt, enemies erased in an instant. But what is recognized in our reservations to punch the button, to turn the key, to press the code, is that there is fallout. There are consequences, cataclysmic consequences that come with exercising that nuclear option. Just because your spouse has committed adultery or because your spouse is a little bit difficult to live with as an unbeliever, does not mean that exercising the option to divorce comes without consequence. There will be consequence, not just in your life, but in the lives of those that love you most and live in proximity to the decisions that you are making. There is never a circumstance under which divorce is advisable, is good, is a noble thing, and is never something that ought to be celebrated. There are times when separation ought to happen most assuredly. In the case of violence or mistreatment, I'll, I'll come help you move the box and drop one on his head in the process. But there, there's still a way of pursuing reconciliation. There's still a way of praying for sanctification in so much as there is a will to do so. There is license given that divorce might be pursued, but note that it's not required of any one participant in the marriage itself. I see this passage manipulated in a lot of ways that really riles me. Let me touch on a few of those. The Bible says that a, a believer is not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. A lot of what is dealt with in terms of marriage issues could be avoided 
by simply sticking with the principle of hot-hearted believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, marrying others who love the Lord with all their heart and soul and strength and mind. And young people, you need to set that expectation early. Like by the time you get to me, couple comes, we're ready to do premarital counseling, pass away, we want to be married. And you can't tell you anything. You're all googly-eyed and swimmy-headed, and it wouldn't matter what I said in those meetings. You wouldn't hear anything that I said at all. Now, I sort of meddled with mamas and daddies last week about encouraging these long courtships and nine graduate degrees before you get married. But I'm going to meddle with you young people for just a minute. The reason in certain instances your parents give you that counsel is because you're irresponsible and immature and incapable of assessing a life partner in a way that creates any confidence on the part of your parents whatsoever. Now the answer to that is not, not to wait until you're 35, but to grow up, to man up, to mature, to be sensible, objective, and level-headed about the decisions that you're making. And the best way to do that, the best way to do that is when there's some distance that exists between you and your future helpmate. By the time you're holding hands and sitting together at church, you can't tell you nothing. You don't hear anything. But if from some distance you'll begin to examine the fruit in their life, to see that they love Jesus, that they're bearing fruit worthy of repentance, you're able under those circumstances to make a good about. If you wait until there's affection, I know these, bo these boys are sorry and low down and they will say anything and they will do anything. I see these young men come into our church and start sitting next to our girls. And, and they, they're, all, they're in the right place, doing all the right stuff, saying all the right things. And just as soon as the ideas, I, I do's are in the rearview mirror, you couldn't find them in a church service with the CIA. And now they've hoodwinked her into believing that they were something that they never truly were. And there she is. Now, I suppose it could happen with girls and, and boys, but I see it far, often, far more often with, with the boys and the girls than the other way around. We live in the Bible Belt where everyone is sort of assumed to be believers. And I've, I've witnessed husbands and a few times even wives who would lay claim to faith in Jesus while mistreating their spouse in order to prevent any use or dependence on this passage as an outlet for the ongoing abuse, neglect, and frustration that a believing spouse was experiencing in their marriage. Let me tell you something, men. If you don't love your wife as Christ loved the church, if there's any tendency to neglect or mistreat your wife, do not talk to me about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Wives, if you're not willfully submitting with joy in your heart to the spiritual headship of your husband, if you're not attending to the needs of your husband, I don't care how many women's Bible study workbooks you have filled out. Do not talk to me about your thriving relationship with Jesus. You trifle with the things of this world, but let us never meddle with the word of God for nefarious purposes, aims, or outcomes. You ought to be careful of such things. I've seen unbelieving spouses lean into this passage and say, I'm not going anywhere. And they take a hyper literal view of what Paul says. If he or she is willing to stay, you remain. 
Sometimes an unbelieving spouse can create such a hostile environment. You have no recourse but to remove yourself from that situation. That's the very kind of thing the Apostle Paul is addressing in our passage. God has called us, as he said, to live in peace. So there is license here to move on. License, liberty, rather, that can be exercised, not without consequence, but liberty that can be exercised without engaging in sin. Stay as much as is possible and be the sanctifying force within the family. But be wise to the teaching of God's word. Don't be manipulated by someone playing fast and loose with the holy word of God. There's more here than just marriage. Paul says in verse 17, however, each one must live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. The fact that this is broader than marriage is emphasized in verse 19. Circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter, but keeping God's command does. In other words, in every area of life, remain in the life situation God called you in. If you move over to verse 25, we'll get back to the business of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He says, they are about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I consider this to be good because of the present distress. It is fine for a man to remain as he is. In other words, in a state of singleness. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Don't seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Paul speaks like a single man, doesn't he? I would say as a married man that marriage is a wonderful thing, a blessed thing, a beautiful thing, and I suspect that I would be a hot mess and a big heap of disaster were it not for my wife and for my family. You may have the gift of singleness, and if that's where you find yourself in life at this particular moment, stay there as much as is possible. For many, there is no gifting in this particular area, and you need a wife with good sense, like mine, to keep you from doing dumb things. I'm alive, at least in part, because of my wife's cautious influence in my life. Some of you men need the cautious influence of a godly woman to keep you between the ditches and alive when push comes to shove. He's simply commending here that we remain in whatever life situation we have been called in, staying in difficult situations in order to be salt and light right where God has placed us. Stay and make it work. Stay and be a vessel of the gospel. Stay and be salt and light. Stay and bear witness to the gospel. When I, when I was saved, I, I made an effort, a good faith effort at remaining in my friend group, at staying where I was, and quickly learned that I did not have the spiritual fortitude to remain in proximity to those influences without succumbing to that kind of temptation. The same will be true for some of you. The hope is that you grow in grace and maturity and are able to circle back to that group of friends and to be salt and light and bear witness to the truth of the gospel. But there must always be this tension, this balance. We are in the world and not of the world. Should we find ourselves slipping into the patterns of the world, withdrawing to the safety of the body of Christ for revival, renewal, and encouragement that helps us to be holy even as our God is holy? There is something of a unique perspective that Paul provides in verses 29 and following that I find to be immensely helpful. 
we have addressed in previous verses, if but briefly, the idea of being saved in a difficult life situation. The goal is there to stay, but we have not been asked specific about being saved in a difficult marriage situation. What in the world are we to do? There are times when I observe marriages that make me wonder about fairness in general. I have observed this up close and personal in my grandparents. My grandmother was a godly woman, sweet woman, precious woman, loved Jesus with all her heart, was an incredible gospel influence in my life and is with the Lord today. My grandfather was one of the most difficult people to be around, let alone to live with, that I have ever known in this life. If I had a nickel for every time he rattled that tea glass and said, Dot, I need something to drink, I would be a very wealthy man. And it would crawl all over me. My granny used to infuriate me when I first moved in with him on Saturday mornings. She would wake me up. On the other side of my bedroom wall, she'd be sitting in her rocking chair at the side of his recliner reading out loud the Bible. She read him the Bible who knows how many times in the hopes that her reading of the word would not return void with regards to his salvation. He never came to faith, but she never stopped reading the Bible. She was a precious, saintly woman. You could mark the various chapters of her life by the person she was sacrificially serving in that window of time. In her younger years, it was her mother who died young of cancer. It was her father in the 80s. In the 90s, it was her daughter born with cerebral palsy and living to be 40 years old. In the 2000s, it was a knucklehead grandson who seemed to have no hope whatsoever. Even in the years after I became an adult, was called to faith and began to preach the gospel, it was a great grandson in need of her investment. I'm talking about a saintly woman who was married to one of the most difficult men I have ever been around. And I would look at her and wonder, how is this fair? How is this right? It just didn't seem right to me that my saintly grandmother would have this kind of lot in life. Every now and then in counsel, I'll talk to a godly woman married to a cantankerous, low-down man and wonder how in the world this precious woman could wind up matched together with this clown Every now and then, there'll be some humble, gentle, Christ-fearing man. And I'll wonder, how in the world did he wind up married to the wicked witch of the West? <laughs> it just seems altogether unfair, right? Paul addresses this. Look at verse 29. I say this, brothers, the time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. What Paul describes here is a little bit enigmatic. It seems almost ill-fitting. But let me tell you the gist of what he's saying. With regards to a difficult marriage situation, we live in light of eternity. If you're expecting that you're going to find your full reward in the marriage relationship, you have greatly miscalculated. And I just want to say to you, there's never been a group of people. There has never been a society. There has never been a race, an ethnic group. There has never been a culture as fixated on feeling as the present generation. You cannot trust your feelings and the Bible tells us this, right? The mantra of society is follow your heart. 
But the teaching of the Bible is that your heart is wicked. It is evil above all else. It is not to be trusted. This is the teaching of the Bible. You cannot trust your feelings as an accurate analysis of the objective realities with which you live. I can change your feelings with a pill, with the shot. I can change your disposition with just a tad bit of medication. You can't trust that. You cannot trust that. And you have to stop listening to your heart in that way. Stop trusting your heart. It's an unreliable source of information. I was in the hospital a few weeks ago now. I got to tell you, medication can, can turn your disposition in the drop of a hat. It can make your worst day turn into the best day. <laughs> and under the right circumstances, it can make your best day turn into the worst day. Have the circumstances of your life really changed? No. The only thing that's changed is, is chemical composition within your flow of blood. Your feelings are not a good assessment of the tangible, objective realities which exist around you. Stop fixating on your feelings and look to the tangible, expressed, objective realities that exist around you. It's, it's not just that we're an, an immensely selfish people that leads us to these feeling conversations. Talking about how we feel is, is also a good psychotherapeutic way of deflecting responsibility. If I happen to talk about how I feel about something, what I'm really saying when you pull back all of the layers is, I feel this way, that is inarguable, which means that you must make adjustments in your life in order that I would feel differently. It's just a very sophisticated way of deflecting responsibility. And in our culture, we really like to deflect responsibility. If you think that the responsibility of your spouse is to make you feel happy, you have greatly miscalculated. So some of you act as though there is to be this marriage partner that comes along that, that's going to help us to have a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment, and it just cannot be. Some of you think that you're looking for a spouse. Some of you think that you're looking for this, this special set of circumstances in your marriage or in your relationship, and what you're looking for is a savior. Your identity must never be in your marriage. Your identity is in Christ. Your sense of security cannot be found fully in the relationship that you have with your spouse. It must be found in Jesus. And your ability to find fulfillment, satisfaction, and joy cannot rest on the shoulders of your spouse. It is far too great a weight to bear, patently unfair to your partner. Only Jesus can afford such things for us. You're not looking for a spouse. You're looking for a Savior. And only Jesus can do that. If your inclination is to cite the issues with your, uh, within your marriage, noting I'm not happy, it's just dumb and illogical. It's a break with the consistent teaching of the Bible that calls us away from self-interest to pursue the well-being of those around us and to find our sense of delight in Christ and in Christ alone. 
You know what happens as you begin to find your security, your identity, your fulfillment in Jesus? Your happiness, so to speak, is no longer contingent upon the ebbs and flows of the circumstances of life. If you're one of those people who's just all over the place, here today and gone tomorrow, happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad, highs and lows, highs and lows, highs and lows, fix the anchor of your soul in Jesus and find the stability that can only be found in the one in whom there is no variation, no shadow of turning, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Have your mind transformed and renewed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm not among those that discounts the need for certain mental health or behavioral health treatment. I'm not foolish. I recognize that God has gifted those within the field of medicine to write prescriptions and to have insight and to provide for needs that arise, physiological and biological needs that are very real, very pressing, and which ought not be neglected, nor should practitioners of the word seek to take up sole responsibility for administering the needs necessary in those situations. But I got to tell you what statistics are telling us today about mental health issues ought to be greatly concerning to us. 50% of our world is not in a behavioral health crisis. A great many of those simply need to rest the anchor for their soul in the staying power and stability of Jesus. Stop grasping for the feeling of happiness that will always elude you in this life. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ to find identity and security and satisfaction and joy and the stability that you've been searching for for all these years. You're not going to find it your marriage partner, you're only going to find that in Jesus. You're saved and you're in a difficult marriage. Paul says you live that life in light of eternity, acknowledging that your full reward will not be found in your mortal life, but in the sheer fact that there'll come a day when on the brink of all eternity, you hear the tender voice of the Savior say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. It felt for me unfair that my grandmother lived the life that she lived in the latter years of her life. There was a season of, of uh, widowhood for her. Most of her life spent by that point. Her body broken by the years of service she provided to him, to me, to a daughter, to a father, to a mother. But her reward was not to be embraced, experienced, or found in this life but in life that is to come. Are you ready? Are you living in light of eternity as a husband, a wife, a mother, a father? Have you allowed that your gaze would drift to the things of this world? Is the reward to which you look something to be found here for the one who meets us with his embrace over there? Do you know Christ? Do you love and and treasure him with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind. He's all we need. You think you find these things and stuff here and relationships and popularity and status and standing and girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever the case would be. Only Jesus can afford for those things. The good news this morning is that he's promised he would. That all who come to him, weary and heavy laden, he would gladly give rest. That he would save and sanctify and 
sealed for eternity, establishing for us a reward in heaven. Do you look to that? Is that what you look toward? Or something petty, something trite, maybe even something as noble as marriage, but which cannot measure up to the provision of a good and faithful Savior. Dear friend, come to Jesus and find that all other things will be added unto you. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning, for your word, for its instruction, for the help we find here. God, I pray that you would help us to honor the teaching of your word in marriage and family in every area of life. Glorify yourself in the obedience of your people. Empower obedience in your people by the presence of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you'd save the lost, that you would sanctify your bride, the church. Draw us near by the power of your spirit. Help us even as we approach the Lord's table to do so in a worthy manner. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.